Welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. It is good to be with you here today. I have the honor of having as a guest on my show, program, whatever you want to call this thing, uh, one of my friends who I actually met this past fall, and recently he's uh, received some notoriety, we might say. His name is James Wood. James Wood is uh, was an associate editor at First Things, just wrapped that up June 1st, so this month, and now he's on his way to be a professor in Canada. Um, James, what is the university you're going to up in Canada? Yeah, it's Redeemer University. It's a uh, small liberal arts college uh, with kind of a reform bent. Yeah, I'll be heading up there. I start next month. So That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, it took us a while to get this uh, scheduled. I'm sure you, I know you live a busy life. And if you're moving up there, then I'm sure you're moving from the States up there sometime in the next few months. Is that right? Yeah, I got a lot of uh, a lot of hoops to jump through to get back up there. But I did do my PhD up at uh, in Toronto uh, nearby Wycliffe College, so it's a little bit familiar territory. But uh, yeah, COVID restrictions make things a little bit more difficult, and um, and it's also yeah because we're going to be applying for permanent residency and stuff. There's just more paperwork, so for sure. And then with the new laws being passed, any guns you have to turn those in at the border. I'm assuming <laughs> That's right. so. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're going to search the huge U-Haul for those. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what's really fun, I love having fellow Texans on the on the program. Uh, James is from the Texas area, the Dallas area. Is that? Yeah, there it is. We both got our cowboy hats handy. Our just in case. Just in case. Um, and then you went to uh, the school in Austin, is what I can call it, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, that's actually where I became a Christian, which is... Uh, surprising thing i was in a uh a uh, underage drinking club which they call fraternities right um and uh, at a, a very liberal secular university university of texas austin and uh, that's where the lord grabbed grabbed a hold of me so very very grateful for for that experience and uh, it was through campus ministry called crew uh and uh yeah oh much of my life to them so uh yeah i had a great time down there and then i became a pastor helped plant i helped plant a couple churches down there and uh, really love that city, but but then God called us elsewhere. That's great. Yeah, Austin's a beautiful town. Kim and I were just down there. We uh, we rode our bikes onto campus, and anytime yep. I'm in a college town, it's fun to just see the campus. I mean, be- typically they're very beautiful places, yeah. uh, good architecture, good pathways, and we made sure to get her a picture of her doing horns down right on campus. So go. classic right. Aggies. Classic. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to have James on the podcast because we've been talking back and forth and I, I really did have the joy of meeting him back at ETS in November. Uh, and we just hit it off uh, talking about all sorts of stuff. Similar journey. I, I really feel a kindred spirit in terms of our movement, in terms of theolo- theological development, um, maybe not cultural background. I mean, uh, from, from what I know of your story, we grew up differently. I grew up in the church uh, all my life. You did not. But in terms of once, we, once God yeah. got a hold of us and invited us in ministry— Austin was a place I wanted to, I was exploring moving to after college. Um, <laughs> Standard Aggie. Yeah. Go to the pagan, go to Nineveh. That's right. That's how the Aggies, that's how they look at Austin. <laughs> and it's true. I, I Matt Carter, you know, who started, planted the big, uh, the big A29 church there. That's uh, right. I, mean, I went there, I went there for a little bit in college and he used to always, cause he's an Aggie too. Yep. It's like going there to the pagan hellhole to rescue him. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's yeah. true though. It's true. You know, I talked to Matt Carter about that. Uh, I should try to have him on the podcast because he said he's a good dude. He's we've a, never met, but I really, I really respect him. I said, uh, you know, how did it go so well for you? I'm in Boulder. I always kind of looked at Austin Stone as somebody I wanted to be like in Boulder. Um, <laughs> and he's like, well, it helps when you play it with Chris Tomlin. And I was like, oh, fair it point. Does, it does help. It does help. Yeah, yeah. And I think he'd probably be the first to say that um that rapid growth has its has its drawbacks for sure yeah absolutely so you were part of two presbyterian church plants is that right yeah yeah i was a uh, um after i left austin stone you know i was drawn to a, a more liturgical denominational tradition i was, ended up in the pca which we'll, we'll get to uh because of actually my um um appreciation for the ministry of tim keller at the time especially not the only thing only reason but he was a real big deal around that time um, and uh, ended up at, the, at a PCA church down there, came on staff with them um, and uh, didn't help plant that. Uh, but it was there pretty early. And actually, I left them to one of the one of the ruling elders helped plant an A29 church in Austin. And I left as a core member okay. there while I was also in seminary. I was already in seminary. And then from that, came back to the PCA and helped plant a PCA church. Uh, in Austin. So, uh, yeah, those are really, first. I've seen, a, you know, de- you know, um, gotten to see a couple different experiments, uh, see what church planting's like. And I did realize that I'm probably not a church planter, uh, which I think probably more people are realizing now, right? A lot of people, sure. the church planting thing was big uh, around that time and, uh, and it, good. And I think a lot of good came from that, but I think not everybody, my, my personality probably isn't uh, the best for that. And so I ended up realizing that I love to teach and that's why I ended up kind of doing what I'm doing. That's great. So one of the first questions I have right off the bat, and, and part of the reason uh, James is an important person to have on the podcast at this time in his life personally, is, besides all the moving around, is he wrote an article for First Things. I read a draft of it uh, before it yeah. went to publication, and I was uh, I was kind of like, James, come on, man. Like, this is, this is not hard at all. Like, I know you to have really strong opinions, and you can be uh, nuanced in a way that's actually constructive, academically minded. And this piece just feels like, why are you just kind of pandering? Uh, and then it drops and kind of James <laughs> gets unloaded on. He got the good French press from David, David French. And so two times. Uh, two times, two times in one month. It was it was amazing. And so I guess, <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, they're wondering, and this is what I'm going to ask you right off the bat, is why do you hate Tim Keller so much? Why is it you hate Tim Keller? <laughs> Yeah, so the beginning of your question is appropriate. You know, you said it sounded too soft, and whoever says I actually really do love Tim Keller, and uh, which I don't know if he believes that at this point, but uh, hopefully he does uh, because I really do. And he changed my life from a distance so much that we named our dog after him. Once I told, so I was telling Rusty the story. Rusty's the head editor first things, and and I was just telling him the story about kind of my appreciation for Keller about how I've moved. From it, but I was like, yeah, I mean, we even named our dog after. He's like, okay, you have to write this story, mm. and uh, and you have to start with that line. And so um, I wasn't originally planning on writing this um, at all, and though I had my critiques, and and you know, we, you and I had had talked about these things, and not particularly focused so much on Keller himself, but right. but kind of the whole cadre of people who kind of follow his model under what I would label. If, imprecisely, but I do think these two terms catch a lot of things. Winsome third wayism. And, uh, and so you and I had discussed, um, uh, some of those things in our, in our encounters. Um, so one of the things I want to say before I forget is in this conversation, I very much, I'm looking for, I was looking for this podcast cause you know, you're a friend 
And also, I think you've thought a lot about these things. And so I, I feel like I don't have to do too much work on this because no. I want to I pick your brain a little bit also and kind of what you think about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, so why did I, basically, why did I write this, I guess, is um, what Rusty asked me to. Um, but I, I guess I'll, let me just share a couple of reasons again to restate so people, if they haven't read the pieces, kind of understand where I'm coming from is I was very influenced by Keller, uh, you know, um, the early, the ministries that brought me to faith and then also helped me grow my faith were very influenced by him at the time. And, um, and also, um, yeah. And also one of the things a lot of people don't know about Keller is one of the reasons why he really actually became pretty famous among ministers for a long time was before he started writing his first big book was reason for God in 2007, 2008. But before that he wrote these amazing articles just doing like profound sociological analysis of our contemporary moment at that time mm -hmm. and kind of what ministry looked like. And like through the late 90s, early 2000s, tons of ministers were like, this stuff is pure gold. I remember an 829 website, Reformationary, I forget who that guy was. And he would just like give links to all these articles and people were just eating that up. And yeah. I was too, super insightful. And so before he ever wrote these big books, tons of ministers were, were benefiting from him. And I was too. So I became a minister with the Campus Crusade crew and then a pastor, but I was taking in all his teachings. Um, yeah, and I shared about the rust, rusty uh, discussion, but also, you know, my, my critiques are in in the article, in, in the first article especially, you know, I, I did make a case that I do think his framework for evangelism, discipleship, and cultural engagement were, were better suited for a previous era in American life, which we can discuss that. Um, and uh, and then, but the, but the second point I, I ended up making much more strongly in the second piece at American Reformer uh, was that I do think, especially his his disciples tend to approach what I say politics and cultural engagement over cult, very contentious issues through the lens of evangelism. Mm -hmm. And I started to see that uh, through the way that they would make public statements on social media and things like that. And I just started to see that there were some there were some real issues with that framework. And so I kind of wanted to expand. On that, because I also, I just, like you and I had talked, tons of other people had a similar journey to us who were big fanboys, disciples of Keller, and especially kind of post-2014, 2016, started to, re started to question some things about that framework. But I, what I had noticed is a lot of those people, I, I think, didn't treat Keller very charitably and didn't kind of do pay due respect. And I, I think the, the discourse around it was pretty debased. And, uh, and so I, I, I actually, one of the reasons that I let Rusty convince me to write it was I did want to raise the discourse a little bit, but like, okay, here are some precise terms, I think, uh, or at least some concrete terms that maybe we could build on, but like, don't just attack the man. He's not just an enemy of the church of in any sort of way, right. even if we have critiques of him. So that's kind of why I wrote it. Uh, and, uh, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there, but that's kind of the genesis of this. I do uh, not hate Tim Keller. I love him very much. And I'm praying for him in his health right now. So yeah, our church has been praying for him as well. Yeah, it's it's really confusing. I mean, I'll I'll see some podcasters or what do you even want to call them, uh, guys that are thinking about some of the same stuff I'm thinking about, and they're like, Keller's a Marxist. I'm like, uh, yeah, no. he's not. Yeah. Okay. Like I could I could I can <laughs> see why they yeah. like land. They they're putting pieces together that lead them to that conclusion. I just when those pieces get put together for me, I don't I I go somewhere else with it. Um, yeah. And so I appreciate the kind of disclaimer up front, because I think for me, for a person like me, when I kind of like either push back against an idea that's very associated with the person, people can be like, why do you hate that guy so much? I'm like, I don't hate him. Yeah. I just disagree with him. And yeah. I think we should, especially uh, it's a masculine thing 
to disagree with people. Yeah. Uh, you don't always have to do it publicly either. You can do it to, to uh, someone's face. It was really funny, just a personal anecdote, because um, it kind of overlaps with Jordan Peterson and some other ideas, <laughs> is that being able to sit at a table with other people that you respect and that you love and being able to publicly disagree with them is actually a sign of maturity and growth. And yeah, for a lot for sure. of us in Christian circles, we're taught that that's not what good Christians do. So I was in my uh, wife's hometown of Salina, Texas, sitting around the table, and they're all talking about this sport called pickleball. Pickleball. And it's a sport where, you know, it's smaller than tennis. You play it on a hard court, and everybody's playing together. And it's team, double, uh, it's like uh, doubles. So you've got two people on each team, and they're all just raving about it. Now, I, Kim knows, I hate pickleball. Like I hate it because I played tennis. And so when I try to take my kids to play tennis here at the local rec center, there's the pickleballers show up at 6 a.m. It's like they bus in a retirement center and they all take over from 6 a.m. till night. And I can't play tennis with my kids at the rec center because they've just taken over. And so Kim, we're sitting there and all of her family's talking about pickleball this, pickleball that. And I'm just over there eating this chicken fried steak like I don't like that sport at all. And Kim's like, well, Chase doesn't like it. And I'm like, she's right. I hate it. And everybody's like so offended. Uh, yeah. but it ended up where that night I went and played them later in pickleball and they invited me to play with them and I had a good time and we had a bunch of laughs, but that ability to show up to the table, something that early on when you're, when you're like dating and your wife's family says something, you typically don't out yourself and say, I disagree with all of you, <laughs> you know, but later on so, uh, you can develop yeah, I that. Yeah. I, I, a, a real funny story about that, but let me, before I get to that is I do want to say like, it is interesting. Um, I do think, well, okay, I'll side that when I get to the story, but I love Keller, but if he's, if he, he he's, uh, if he can't be critiqued, there's, there's a real problem here. Kel, you know, Keller has 500,000 Twitter followers and he still speaks on contemporary issues all the time and he gets retweeted all the time. And so, and he's shaping a whole generation of, of ministers who have a big profile. And so I think it's, it's really immature for people to push back that strongly of like, he's untouchable. Like don't touch the Lord's anointed. Right. I, I really disrespect. I don't have a lot of respect for people who do that actually. And, uh, cause like, look, I think actually Keller can handle it. Um, and, uh, so anyway, that's one thing, but to your point about, you know, uh, uh the maturity thing, it's, it is really interesting. I spent a, I've, I've been a missionary. That's another funny thing. People who didn't know me in the midst of this whole controversy, right? When it first came out, like made all these assumptions about me. Like this guy doesn't know whatever. It's like, dude, I've been a missionary pastor my entire adult life. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, and I was a missionary in Greece for one summer, which is relevant to this. Sure. One of the things that I had a blast about ministering in Greece was how different it was in this sense. And I, I was a missionary in China the a couple of summers before that. And the, those two experiences are very different. But in Greece, one of the things I found is like people would meet me. First of all, I kind of look Greek. So they'd come up to me and speak in Greek. And I'd <laughs> them, no, I don't. But, uh, but they'd come, uh, for, you know, and it was, I think I went there in 2008. And the first question they'd ask me once they found out I was from America is like, what do you think about George Bush? <laughs> and I was like, dude, I literally just met you. Right, like, yeah. You can't ask me like the most intense, you know, political, hot button po political issues of the day. But one of the things I noticed about my my Greek friends that we made is that they would get in these heated debates, like about all these ideas, yelling and screaming at each other, smoking cigarettes, and then they would leave and they're like, "Oh, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning." And it was fascinating to me, like, what's that's so different from an American because I do think we hold our ideas real close yeah. to our identity, yep. and so we could get into like all sorts of Gnostic, you know, trans issues and things like that. But even just like our political ideas, they're so close to who we are, right? That I think we actually have a really hard time 
debating at, at that level uh, because it feels very personal. For sure. And so and I just noticed like it wasn't personal to these guys. We could we could have radical political debates and uh, and then go get a beer, go get coffee the next day or whatever. So anyway. That's so fun. I love that kind of stuff. And, you know, my friends who know me well know I don't mind that. I, I have had to learn how to like have like small talk, you know, as a pastor, it kind of matters that you're able to be like, welcome to my yeah. church. What do you do for work? And we're not immediately going <laughs> to like, have you repented of your sins? And when do you join in a small group, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I love that as well. So one winsome of, of you. I know <laughs> one of the things speaking of winsomeness is I think a lot of people, um, the easy mistake they make is they assume the word winsome is in the Bible, which it's not, um, yep. which is kind of easy critique. But I think a bigger critique is yep. they've, they've assumed winsomeness is a composite word, a summary word to describe the biblical model of faithful ministry. And so the, the question I have in here in my mind is, is, is winsomeness, which we could look up the dictionary definition of it, is but is winsomeness a biblical approach only? Is it one of many biblical approaches, or is it a ministry strategy to reach people? Um, and that that's something that has kind of irked me in these discussions is because a lot of people, what I sense, and I get it, because if you're critiquing, like if you're disagreeing with the Bible, then like, yeah, like let's go after James Wood. <laughs> like, but if if we're just yeah. if we're just disagreeing with a ministry strategy one of many that the Bible posits and we're not discarding yep. being kind. We're not discarding the appropriateness of wisdom in different contexts with different people, with different situations. We're not discarding the insights and, and the biblical truths here. We're just questioning using one approach to, to engagement. Um, how would yep. you deal with that kind of question critique? Yeah. Yeah. Th I guess maybe three angles to that. One is, um, uh, Going to the dictionary wouldn't be helpful, right? Because actually, what I'm doing with that term is is it is is it a label that that the disciple the people I'm actually discussing they themselves appropriate for themselves. Okay. So they're defending, they're defensive because they actually embrace that label uh, as a kind of a, an overarching way to approach ministry, evangelism, discipleship, and cultural engagement. And and so I'm not looking at a dictionary definition of that term. Uh, I'm looking at kind of a composite kind of uh, package approach to cultural engagement that those disciples themselves appropriate. That's why they're largely defending it. Right. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, okay. What biblical passages am I not <laughs> abandoning that are kind of tangentially related to the winsomeness? Okay. So let me just list off a few phrases, right? Like I'm not, th these things we absolutely can never get rid of. We can't, no context ch uh, changes these imperatives, right? We need to show gentleness and respect, especially in defending the faith. We need to let our reasonableness be known. We need to correct our opponents with gentleness that God may grant them repentance. And I do hint, uh, focus in on that, though. Like, you need to be clear enough that God leads them to repentance. Right. So that's one thing. I'll come back to that. Uh, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Absolutely. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show courtesy to all people. The, the big the big text that is probably closest, if you could find a Bible text that actually approximates the winsome labor, right, is, is 1 Corinthians 9. I've become all things. Mm. To the weak, I've become weak that I might win win some of them. I've become all things to all people that I might that save some. Uh, and also another of the passages, right, that you, we have to love our neighbors, even our enemies. No context, nothing uh, repeals these imperatives, right? right? Um, but I, I do think with the package approach that I'm talking about, 
there are other aspects as you watch kind of the behavior of these people who appropriate this label. Uh, there are other aspects of the biblical vision that tend to get muted or downplayed in their approach. And, and so again, just to reiterate what I'm saying, when I critique winsome third wayism or just let's focus on winsomeness, I'm really referring to the package approach of cultural engagement that seeks above all to minimize offense so as to maximize open openness for the gospel. Okay. Uh, and it's usually, I think, trying to show the reasonableness of Christianity and often very clearly motivated by trying to distance from the fundamentalists uh, or, or the deplorables or something else. And I, my, one of my critiques is not other aspects of the biblical vision get muted and downplayed. And I do think winsomeness often translates into niceness. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm just trying to say that in our increasingly post-Christian culture, truthful love will be met with hostility and called unloving and unwinsome. And if we're overly concerned about how we're received by others, we will be tempted to think, no matter how nice we have been, that we are wrong and that we'll begin to doubt our convictions. Right. And so that's a big part of my critique. Absolutely. I think that's, you're dead on, on, on those matters. And I really appreciate you bringing up those biblical passages. Um, it was funny. And I, before my sabbatical, maybe I was feeling a bit spry, but I brought up that passage of becoming all things to all people. And I said, I made a joke and I said to the trans, I became trans, or at least that's how some Christians <laughs> interpret it, which is just yeah. this overly like accommodated Christianity where there's no confrontation. It's just kind of like, let's just, you know, uh, overly be nice. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's quite annoying. One, one thing that happened over COVID, you know, I'm in a pretty liberal context. And so they're very COVID conscious and things are shut down, but we're out to lunch. The restaurant was pretty much empty except for my family. And so we're there right after church. And out on the street through the window, I see the street preacher and he's holding up his sign. He's been doing this for years. You know, he's been doing this. And when we started in Boulder, I was kind of always like sticking up my nose at him. Like, man, doesn't that guy know any better? But then what I saw is him getting kind of assaulted by somebody and somebody trying to tear down a sign. And I got up from the table. I said, Kim, I think I have more in common with that guy holding that sign, standing on the corner of the street preaching than I do with a lot of my evangelical brethren. Because at least he's trying. And for yeah. a lot of my brothers, I'm going like, where are you at? Like, we've got trans run rampant in public schooling. And we're just like, not going to talk about it. You know, we're not going to engage it. And so I, I, I just feel, uh, I, I told my friend Matt, I was like, I feel a kindred spirit more with him. And that makes me scared and sad. Because <laughs> I'm like, because before I was like, I know that strategy isn't necessarily the best. But now I'm like, you mm -hmm. know what? Why not? Like, why shouldn't we just embrace street preaching? And I heard the reason that this piqued my interest is because you brought it up on Josh Dahl's <laughs> podcast. And I was like, I want to I want to talk about this. Why? Like, because I, I, I have a professor, uh, Doug Rotheis from Denver Seminary. He said, I'm going to come up and street preach in Boulder. And I'm like, great. Show me how. Like, I want to see somebody <laughs> do it well. OK, I want to see somebody do it and and not 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 in a way that's overly confrontational, yeah. but not in a way that's like you know, not, I'm barely there. So in your opinion, when you think of yeah, like street yeah. preaching, what makes it bad? Sure. Yeah. I, um, okay. Street preaching is not bad. And I did, I think I even in Dawes's podcast, I, uh, qualified it enough. Of like you get a lot of crazy hellfire people who are a little bit too excited to be hellfire and brimstone. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you're just preaching the sins of the culture in the public sphere, I don't know, actually know if you're preaching. Um, 
So that would be one thing. And they, but you do get those types of people who come down to places like Austin, right? But actually, there was one guy who did come, and I became friends with him, Cliff Connectly. Uh, people can look him up, K-N-E-C-H-T-L-E. And he's done it for over 35 years. He's gone to like 25 different campuses a year and does it. And um, and I befriended him. He actually played, I think he actually played a, a basketball at Dartmouth. And, you know, he's this really interesting cat because I play basketball. So I played basketball with him one time. He's like this goofy street preacher playing hoops and he could like actually ball. And he was like wearing a Cosby sweater. He's like so great. But um, he could do it really well. And he would set up for a whole week, right? Yeah. And he would like, he would field questions. And it was always funny. I went every year when I was a campus minister there. First couple of days, people are so angry at him, right? And then you see like a shift around Wednesday. Okay. It's like people are like, no, this guy actually really cares. And he's like really asking good questions. And, press. and it's like, then Thursday and Friday are like totally different. And people are like coming to faith. And really? Like, I mean, it's just really crazy. And every time it would happen, like with first few days, Wednesday, last couple of days, stuff like that would happen. Almost everybody who wants to do street preaching is not that guy. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you are that guy and you have that skill set, go, God be with you. Uh, but I bet most people who are, it's kind of like the young guy or maybe could like compare it to like the cage stage Calvinist, yeah. right? Like the guy's a little bit too excited to do apologetics, especially, uh, I hated doing one of my things that I, I couldn't stand in college ministry is you get the 18 year old kid who grew up in the church his whole life or something. This is different from cage stage, but you know, grew up in church his whole life and just really wants to do apologetics. And basically like, it's like, what he wants to do is just argue with his friends. Sure. And, uh, and usually those are the people who probably aren't best suited for that. Right. So it's not that I have anything necessarily against street preaching. I, I you know, I, I, I question the effectiveness for most people doing it and this, and this skill set. Okay. So, um, but I'm critical of overly cautious evangelism methods too, which I mentioned in Josh's podcast as well. Right. For the sure. Friendship evangelism model where you, you basically say, I'm, I'm going to become friends with these people so that I end up ultimately gain enough uh, social credibility in their eyes that I can cash in on it. And uh, you never cash in on it. And uh, then what I think you're communicating to your friends, you actually don't really care either about them or you don't think that this is the, the gospel truth is that important. Absolutely. So. Yeah, Josh, and I'll drop a link to that. Josh and I talked about that on another episode that I really enjoyed kind of exploring that idea of relational evangelism because I didn't even know that was like a strategy. It was just, yeah. it was a thing I had imbibed. And I think that honestly is what a lot of people do with Keller and third waysism and winsomeness. It's just kind of the culture evangelicalism is kind of, uh, built for itself, this niceness culture. And I really, uh, I mean, I personally don't enjoy it for my personality, but it just, it doesn't seem to have the, uh, have the effect that we need now living in the time we're in. And one of the questions I guess I have, you know, let's say you're right. Okay. Somebody comes and says, James, you're right. Okay. You know, Keller comes, gives you a call. Hey, James, I read your article. I think you're right. Okay. So tell me, how should Redeemer New York be different now? How should Redeemer City to City plant different churches now, now that I've come to realize you're correct in your assessment? What should we do? Oh, gosh. Okay. Before I get to that question, since I did put some notes together, make sure I didn't sound like an idiot. Um, so let me uh, – oh, gosh. I'd have to do a lot more. First of all, I have to do a lot more. One of the fascinating things about Keller, what's so impressive, and I did signal this in the first thing's essay, is like, if people have, I don't know if people have read his church planting manual. Maybe you have. It's like crazy impressive. Yeah. I mean, that dude did the work. Um, and I don't know if anybody has done that much work to prepare to plant a church. Right. As he did. Uh, and so like, 
I really, I did try to communicate. Like I, I have a great admiration for him. So, I mean, he did the work. Um, but okay. So before I get to that, like I have, I'd have to do a lot more research of like, what, what does church planting look like today? Uh, uh, but I'll, I'll get to that, but uh, at least some thoughts, but let me, let me say one more thing before I forget is uh, the, the issue about niceness. Um, because I do think winsomeness often translates into that. And I do think that's a radical reduction of the biblical vision. And um, if you play, if you pay close attention to the whole sweep of the Bible, and if you have even just like a cursory knowledge of, of Christian history, prior at least to the last century, uh, you will see that saints and our Savior were not nice all the time. Right. Uh, go read Martin Luther, who would be the best Twitter personality we could ever imagine. Yes. He's he, he doesn't sound like what we're talking about, no. right? Uh, these, you know, and Jesus doesn't always either. I mean, people... Christians have been willing to offend their audience with important truths and have especially hard, hard words for false teachers. And that's a big point I want to make throughout this is like, I do think a lot of people who've imbibed the, the model that I'm talking about have been very soft on false teachers, except, you know, certain people to their right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a real problem. And, uh, and even like if you look at Jesus's ministry, there's a fundamental difference in even his own ministry of what he addresses people caught up in sin versus those who are leading people into sin. Very, right. very different. Uh, and so I wanted to, if your audience hasn't listened to Josh Dawes's podcast, I did just want to read this list again, uh, yeah. because I do think it's really helpful. Uh, my friend, Matt Kennedy, put this together and just like, listen to what is said about false teachers uh, in the Bible. So Jesus on false teachers, they are wolves in sheep's clothing, blind guides, children of hell, sons of the devil, whitewashed tombs. Peter on false teachers, they're irrational animals, creatures born to be caught and destroyed, Blots and blemishes, accursed children, waterless springs, wind-driven mists, dogs who should return to their own vomit. Paul on false teachers, they are accursed. Their teachings spread like gangrene. They must be silenced. They should castrate themselves. John on false teachers, they're liars, antichrists, deceivers. And and he commanded churches to refuse hospitality to them. Like, none of that sounds like the winsomeness that I hear uh, these people advocating. Right. Especially on false teachers who are trying to bring in teachings into the church uh, that are anathema to the biblical vision and, and lead people astray. Yeah. So I, I want to fortify some of that. And um, anyway, so, okay, what, all right. So um, what do what do you do in church planting? And you asked, I think earlier when I was preparing this, you asked me to think about campus ministry. What would I do differently? Yeah. Like ministry? if you were to turn to Austin today, now that you've, you know, you've had this revelation that, you know, Tim Keller isn't perfect. He's not the Pope. He's not Jesus. You know, he's awesome. He's great and benefited a lot from him. But like, I think there's a point of emphasis where we may be a little off. How would my ministry in Austin look different today than when I was on campus? Like, what was I doing then that I wouldn't do anymore? Hmm. Yeah, I would I would do, you know, something similarly, because I don't think I was, uh, like I do actually think, uh, and I mentioned this in, in another podcast, is the the whole missional community thing. There's still something really insightful to that yeah. model that I do think Keller was kind of a one of the early genesis of that. Leslie Newbegin is really kind of the the big dog, and Leslie Newbegin is a life hero for me, and I've never turned away from Newbegin. Newbegin is big deal for me. Um, and so I don't want to talk too much about missional community, but I, it, the, the primary thing is that I do think in the Bible it's very clear that the community is itself the primary vehicle of the mission. And I still believe that. And so even when a culture is hostile to the, the teachings of, especially the moral teachings of Christianity, one of the best things you could do is 
still invite them into authentic Christian communal experiences right. and kind of see what it looks like from the inside. Um, one of the things I tell people too, and then before I get to things that shift, is one of the beautiful things about Christianity that makes it very different from a cult is there are no secrets in Christianity. Uh, everything that we do, everything that we believe is out in the public. Um, and uh, even like, you know, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, like we take notes at our presbyteries and our, and, uh, and our session meetings and like, they're not that hard to access. Right. I mean, we have very, uh, and so th- there's a real beauty to that. So let people in and kind of see, see what it, see what it looks like, see what it feels like. Right. And that I do think starts to break down some, some apologetic uh, issues. So that's one thing I would still do that. What, but one of the things if I was a campus minister, which was in a, in a secular city, maybe this would apply to being a pastor. So I think maybe I would do this. I, I probably still wouldn't encourage like students and I didn't uh, to go, argue all the time and they're with the professors in class like it's kind of inappropriate there's an authority dynamic there sure you know you're probably not gifted to do that if you're you know young student uh, so think about context but i would probably host more debates on hot button issues as a as a pastor and campus minister uh, to, uh because i don't think the camp the current campus culture is going to offer real good good faith debates on important topics uh that includes someone who's clearly going to articulate traditional christian views right and so I do think pastors and campus ministers have an opportunity to host those type of things. And I think people are hungry for it. So I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I would encourage students also, and, and I would encourage parishioners to think about their career choices a bit differently. Like, okay, are you positioning yourself well uh, to um, protect yourself from being canceled hmm. for certain things? Or, uh, you know, think about, you need to be thinking about that a little bit. But also like developing a theology of getting fired. Right. Uh, I think we need to be thinking about that. And I want people to think about like how they're going to support each other if they get canceled for biblical views uh, and refi- refuse to live by lies. Okay, what does it look for us to support each other? Um, and then, uh, yeah, and I would just probably, I mean, I didn't really do this much, but I definitely would encourage people to shift away from worrying too much about trying to avoid the weirdness or offense of the faith. Like you're just not going to be able to, avoid. doesn't mean go be a jerk. I've never advocated for jerk for Jesus, but you're going to be called a jerk. Right. If you hold these things and you kind of need to prepare yourself. Uh, and I have stories about that I could share. Uh, but lastly, um, uh, I would focus more time also on helping people prepare for very difficult conversations. Uh, this would be something that I would focus a lot more on of, uh, okay. People ask you straight up and maybe I'll share the story. Okay. Um, uh, pe- people are just going to ask you straight up what you think about these contentious things. You're, you're, it's, you're not going to be able to avoid it, especially as a pastor. Right. It's one of the things I learned as a pastor. It's good and bad because people kind of know you can't avoid it. You can kind of like, hey, well, this is what I'm ordained. This is what we think. But also you can't avoid it in the sense they, they're going to press you. So we had a, I'll show this very brief story. We had a, uh, a friend who was a, a active in a lesbian lifestyle. Uh, I'm not going to share her name. But we invite. She was our friend already for other reasons, and we invited her over for dinner all the time. And um, and uh, but what's fascinating is there are a couple times that we hung out where she asked us. She said, "Okay, James, I'm here at the table. What do you think about my lifestyle?" And I looked at her and I said, "Okay, I'm not. Gonna, I'm gonna be tempted to say her name, but I looked at her and I said, "Hey, look, can I just pause for one second and just remember, like, you brought this up, <laughs> like." Uh, Okay, so just can you remember that? Because it's important because I want to say like, you are always welcome at my table. Right. You're welcome at my table, no matter what. 
you're not a project to me. I love you. And okay, so now we're gonna talk about this. Just remember all those things. <laughs> and uh, so we had those conversations and uh, and I stood firm on kind of like, here's what the Bible teaches here. We think second conversation, she brought up again. She's like, hey, I know, I know what the Bible says. I, and all my gay friends know what it says too. And I, we're all lying. Uh, and she said that to me. But then the third conversation was fascinating about this stuff. She was actually preparing to change her life because she was getting convicted. And she looked at me, she said, James, and Claire was with, you know, at our, Claire, my wife. She said, James, I'm really scared. And I, and I said, why? And she said, because I know if I start to make these moves, my, my gay lesbian friends are going to abandon me. Yeah. And I just paused with her for a second in a pastoral moment. And I looked at her and said, do you realize how sad and hypocritical that is? Mm. Like, I said, look, I was like, look, you were always welcome at my table, no matter how much your life is different than ours. But but your friends probably think that I'm a bigot. Right. And that I'm inhospitable. And yet you're scared they're going to abandon you if you change your lifestyle. I just said, that's so sad. Like, right. And so I think I want to help people be courageous about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And hospitable at the same time. You can do both. You really can't hold those two together. Right. So that's a great word. It, it, that's something I always want to come back to is that hospitality piece. I think I was at a conference last summer. And they're talking about missional community, hospitality, and the gospel. And I guess one of my questions is, that's what you gave is a great story of like aspirational kind of like, that's what we all want. Or at least I think if you're a Christian, that's in your heart. Like you want to have those conversations. Sometimes those conversations are going to become hostile. And some people yeah. hear the gospel as an aroma of death because they realize yeah, it's yeah. Offend, it, it offends them. Should we go looking for hostility in ministry? Now, what I'm not saying is, should we go looking for persecution? Not really. I don't think we should have yeah. to go look for persecution. I, that's my Southern Baptist heritage kind of had an obsession with seeking persecution by creating a bunch of weird laws yeah. to make you uh, suffer yeah. persecution. But I think Christians need to embrace the fact that the gospel is hostile, that the Old Testament exists, and we're... Joshua is an example for us to go conquer the lands and that, look, we should have a confidence, a swagger about us, not of pride and arrogance. We should walk in humility, but we should also walk courageously and know that like, Hey, like, yeah, like God's ways are so much better than all these other ways. And you're welcome. And like, let's go get a, let's go eat. And if you think this is hostile, uh, you know, that's uh, maybe that's a bit of conviction, but like I, I think this fear of being perceived as hostile um, yep. is part of the very yeah. problem that even if you want to talk politics, that's gotten our politics in the mess it's in. It's because the church is losing its prophetic edge where it's not speaking uh, prophetically against or like to the ruling authorities. So as soon as someone does, it's yeah. like you shouldn't do that. Like keep keep your head down and just coexist with with the secular society. Yeah. It's like no, like there should be. And, and it hits home for me because, like, we had a family leave our church because I wrote an article. And uh, hmm. I kind of do this thing where I write things or say things. And I'm like, this is just what people think, right? And people are like, that's offensive. You can't say that. And I'm like, okay, sorry. <laughs> like, uh, with this article I was advocating, like, the gospel will be perceived as hostile. Like, it is a sword mm -hmm. that cuts. And we are warriors. And we go out and we proclaim the gospel. And we make enemies our friends by the power of God, by his spirit alone, 
regenerating people, but some of those people will be sealed for condemnation as the Bible talks about. And that is a hostile act. And if you're not comfortable mm -hmm. with that, I think you need to read the Bible because that's how the Bible yeah. presents gospel proclamation. Yeah, if, yeah, a couple of things. There's a key verse for me on this. Uh, there's a great, people can go look up Bishop Dobbs's address. Uh, he's an ACNA uh, uh, bishop. He gave a great, great address a couple months ago and he centered in on 1 Corinthians 16 where it's like, stand firm, act like men, uh, be courageous. Uh, that's, a, that's a great verse to, to think about, uh, especially the act like men part. Yeah. I mean, can we say that? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but another verse for me that, that I've been focusing on is second Corinthians four, the opening verses is because it's one of my favorite passages actually to, to set the framework for ministry. Second uh, Corinthians four and five. And Paul says, therefore having the ministry of having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, which is a fascinating way to, to start it. Don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Mm. And then he goes on to say, like, you know, the, the gospel is is a, an aroma of death. That's You brought that up, actually. It comes right after this. But, like, um, you know, open statement of the truth is something that I think I think is probably more important increasingly these days. So the three key terms that I bring up a lot in this conversation is, look, I'm not arguing for nastiness and retaliation and all that, but I am, these are three words I would focus in on, resilience, courage, and clarity. Um, and so, you know, being clear instead of obfuscating, because I think a lot of these people who appropriate the model that I'm, we're talking about, when it comes to the hot button issues of the day, they nuance away the tension, uh, I think, on a lot of issues. And I think like, look, sometimes we actually just need to be a little bit more clear. Not, maybe I'll get to that in a second, but, and then you're going to be, to be courageous and resilient. Like when the pressure comes back that you don't just cave right. um, but for their own good, not just for like you standing up, but also if you believe these things are true and for the good of others, th then you need to be, you need to do it. And I've mentioned this about like the abortion thing or something. That would just be one of them. There'd be many other issues, but like when you, if you're talking to a young woman who's thinking about going to get abortion, and you just kind of like winsome your way into this squishy answer. You're not only possibly being complicit in the murder of a child, mm. but also in, 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 in that hurting that woman as well, uh, her soul, her eternal soul. And, uh, and, uh, and she might hate you later when she comes to repent and that you didn't guide her well. And so that, that would be like just one example. There's many others. Right. Uh, and so, and, and one of the key, so that's a key verse for me. Um, but, a, uh, another, another key quote that I, I've loved to appropriate, uh, in this conversation is from C.S. Lewis, that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Mm. And, uh, and first of all, if you're winsoming your way into being kinder than God, you think God is, uh, you need to check your hubris a little bit. Uh, uh, God, God is much kinder than you. Uh, and yet his word pierces. And, uh, and guides people towards truth. And so that's another thing. And then, um, and also I, I, where I get hopeful. So people are like, oh, you have this persecution complex or you're so afraid. Or, first of all, people need to be pay very close attention to what Ren is arguing and then kind of how I'm building on it. Right. And I'm not overly reliant on his framework. I, I've been thinking about post-Christendom 
for a long time. Right. And he's, I think, gives gives just a helpful heuristic of a particular stage of post-Christendom that might have an acute acceleration, uh, which I do think he's he's pinpointed. Um, and it is targeted on sexual issues because there's there's some, that's where the cultural battle is today. Right. Uh, it, uh, but, um, uh, oh gosh, what was I going to say there? Uh, oh, but where I'm, uh, so uh, he's not talking about just like hostility towards Christian people. He's talking about hostility and uh, kind of oh, absolute opposition to Christian social norms and moral ideals. Right. And, uh, and one of the people I would encourage your audience to go follow is Josh Howerton. He's been doing some really great reflections on some of these things. And uh, he just gave a really good thread on like, look, let's not miss the opportunity in a time of profound moral confusion and chaos. And also that who are the, another question here, who are the Pharisees of today? Right. I, I think when you do like um, the third way thing and you do the prodigal, if you do kind of a, what I'm calling prodigal politics uh, is uh, it's easy to think who the elder brother is, is the people on the right. Right. And I, I think it's actually, that's too simplistic. Who's, who's pushing down the throats of others their, their moral ideals right. and moral orthodoxies in our culture. I don't think it's it's the right as much as people think. Right. And and, and Joe Rigney's been great on this, right, with sexual Pharisees. You had a great podcast episode with that, sexual Pharisees. And I think people need to account for that. And, okay, so we're living in a time of moral confusion, moral chaos, uh, and also profound um, kind of uh, conformity, pressure to conform from the left. And, and I think a lot of people are seeing that there's a lot of that is crazy, right? Yeah. So we, Matt Walsh's uh, 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 movie that just came out, What is a Woman? Right. I think people like are going to watch that and they're going to be like, what the heck is going on? Who will speak to this? Like, right. who will speak with clarity? And like, who's going to do it? It's going to have to be the church. And I think there's a real evangelistic opportunity here. Absolutely. So you ask, like, I'm not just afraid. I'm actually hopeful. If we lean into this, I think there's a lot of people in the middle of American culture who are confused and frustrated, but they feel like nobody's speaking to this with clarity. And I think I want Christians to lean into that. I totally agree. That's I'll pause there. That's been one of my angsts and uh, hopefully a helpful angst. I, don't, I know some people might not perceive it that way is there's this low hanging fruit. You know, if we're going to go into yeah. towns like Paul and find the low hanging fruit, the Gentile believers or the Jewish uh, people that that's who we're going to start churches with. When we plant churches, if we're going to go after the low hanging fruit, why aren't we going after what some and even call normies who are just like fed up with their yeah, kids being yeah. indoctrinated with trans in school. And you're going like, Hey, I can offer you a better way. You know? And like I had a, I was talking with a guy, uh, I'm a friend with, and there's a local Greek Orthodox church. And he was saying, there's people that want to join our church just so they can get a vaccine exemption. And I'm like, hmm. that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Now we could, yeah. we could ethic, we get to buy the ethics of yeah. that and the vaccine. That's yeah. not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is we have people who are not Christians who are interested in the yeah. benefits of Christ and being part of the Christian community. Yeah, I do think there's a lot of opportunities here. And um, and I think we, yeah, on the, on, you brought up the, the COVID stuff. So forget about just the vaccine. But one of my concerns about the whole winsome, the people who appropriate that model is it seems like the, their default is to just kind of go with the status quo narrative mm -hmm. of most things. And that that is what's going to make sure we're, we're not offending. Right. And, but I think a lot of people are looking at the status quo and the, the, what people call the narrative, right. On a lot of issues and being like, what's going on here. It feels like we're being fed a bunch of lies. Right. 
And who's going to, who's going to say these are lies and we're not going to live by them. Right. Right. And, and the church has an opportunity there. Uh, do it respectfully. And I'm not, you know, I have my concerns about how some people go too far or not, which I don't want to discuss here, getting the weeds too much, but I think there's an opportunity and I don't want us to miss that. Um, and there's this great quote. I shared it on um, Twitter the other day. Uh, people, often misattribute it to uh, Martin Luther, but it's a profound quote. And I think it's worth memorizing. I haven't yet, but on all these issues, like are, are we speaking to them with clarity and truth? Right. And um, we're talking about this great quote by Elizabeth Rundler Charles. She said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ. Mm. However, boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides besides is mere flight and disgrace to him mm. if he flinches at that point. Mm. Right? So it's like we have an opportunity to not flinch at the real point of battle. And, uh, and so I want to encourage pastors, Christians, ministers to take up that opportunity. Absolutely. That's a good word. Um Kind of my last question, and I think I, I need to have you back because I want to hear about your research with, I think it's De yeah. Lubach. Is that how you say it? Sure, sure. Yeah, Honor <laughs> okay. De Lubach. Okay. Because that was, I mean. Yeah, we can skip that now if it's like. I mean, yeah. like, because I think we could get into a lot of that because he was a French priest that you did your dissertation on. You're defending it in August, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was a French. Yeah, yeah, his background, he was um, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century probably next to Bart. No big um, deal. And uh, he influenced a lot of major Catholic developments, Vatican II, um, uh, John Paul II, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. Okay. Very influenced by him. Uh, the Radical Orthodoxy Projects very influenced by him. Even liberation theologians call, say that they're influenced by him. Oh, wow. But he's a fascinating figure because his, his and then, then we'll kind of, whatever your question is, but just a brief intro to him is <laughs> the first part of his career was around World War II. And he was very, he was one of the few people in France really resisting kind of the Nazis and all that. Okay. And, uh, and you could look at him, if you could look at the beginning of his career and you could predict, maybe predict his, his whole trajectory is like, he's probably going to be a man of the left. Second half of his career, especially around the council, uh, he was a, a kind of a staunch traditionalist gotcha. and really concerned about kind of liberal, liberal currents and theology and politics. And so he's really fascinating because you can look at him for, uh, and get kind of insight for a lot of issues. So. Yeah, for sure. It does sound fascinating. That's what I want to talk about more, uh, yeah. hopefully on another episode. I think sure. one of the things that some of my friends were concerned with, and I don't, I, I might be trying to put too much together here. Cause one of the things that you keep bringing up um, is, is kind of this, this idea of a straight jacket of ministry models where, we have to operate within these this certain boundary. The boundary is the Word of God, but even within the Word of God, each one of us have different temperaments. And uh, this kind of—I was thinking of the documentary "What Is a Woman." I watched that with Kim the other night, and he interviews Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson talks about temperament. And I think that a lot of ministers yeah. have different temperaments, and it's really easy as ministers to look sure. at guys with different temperaments and go. Well, that's wrong. That's not biblical. Well, it's like, well, maybe we just have different personalities and different strategies and different callings. And I'm, I'm actually fine with that. And a lot of people just don't seem fine with me being the opposite of them <laughs> or different than them, which is not as winsome or not as like, like yeah. when I do the uh, assessment on people pleasing, it's like in the basement, you know, just like, that's not, 
I mean, I get the people pleasing part, but like, I don't, it's just not my go-to personality trait. Um, and I guess that gets into kind of my final question is like, hmm. what, what is it that prevented people from reading your article with any degree of kind of like, Hey, maybe you have some, some insights here. Maybe there's something we can learn. And I guess really, if I were to put a fine point on it, um, there's a lot of people who took your article hmm. and just like, and I, I really don't think it's personal against you. I just think it's the way you articulated it. They were like so uh, entrenched in their ideology of winsomeness. And I start to wonder, <laughs> dude, are they, are they a lost cause? Like, like, mm. am I like, would my time be better spent if I just never even tried to reach them? And instead I just focused on, my family, my ministry, and the next thing coming. Because they're, to me, if they can't even like entertain an article that pushes back a little bit, they are the problem. And is it even worth my time to build bridges with them? Because I'm, they're not going to fight. They're not going to go to war with me. They're not going to be that missional community with me. They're not going to be those people for me. Um, you, you, yeah. Do you kind of get what I'm getting at there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a few thoughts and I would love to you to bounce back to if you could elaborate on other ideas you might have. Sure. I have, I have at least three thoughts about why I think people respond the way they did, which again is still very surprising to me. But uh, first I think the publication uh, itself uh, made it, uh, people felt like they had to deal with it. First things, first things is hard to ignore. You know, it is kind of a, uh, an important institution in our, in our landscape. And it isn't, What's fascinating is that most of the most of the uh, publications that a lot of these people read are controlled by the the Kellerite tribe, and First Things is not. Right, and so it's it's out of their control, and I think that that is an issue. And I do think um, Keller himself and 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 his disciples largely have, in many ways, for decades, avoided serious critique. Um, and I think Twitter also has really changed that. Um, and not always for the best, but I do think people have access to these figures and their thoughts and can respond to it in real time. So anyway, so that's one thing. So that's the, the publication itself, first thing, yeah. and, and kind of how that how it relates to the evangelical landscape, which is interesting. Second, I imagine the tone itself had something to do with it, okay. which is, uh, I don't think people, if I was nasty, I think people would have been able to dismiss it easier. Right, that's true. And so, uh, and... Uh, um, and I think they tried to read nastiness into it, uh, which yeah, um, that was odd. I don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's really there, as if it was just another um, Sora Bamari type diatribe against David French or something. Yeah. which I think David French did read it that way. He sees first things, it's critiquing Keller, gotcha. on certain aspects, and he thinks, oh gosh, this is just another thing like Sora Bamari against me. And I really hope if people go go read my piece versus against David Frenchism and tell me if you think that they they sound the same, right? Because I really tried to differentiate. I'm not saying anything against Saurabh or anything, but I do think I did try to approach that conversation differently. Thirdly, if I'm correct, which again is contestable, and I admit that, it's I'm making I'm offering an argument right. for debate, then a lot I think a lot of these people are going to have to seriously reconsider their approach to ministry and cultural engagement, which I think is threatening. Um and that's that well, let me make two comments there. One, like you said, um I do think people have an idolatrous attachment to this ministry model. And which is fascinating to me, if they're being discipled by Keller, yeah. who taught me more about contextualization than anybody. Yeah. And I, and I don't think Keller, 
I hope not, would think that his model is final and absolute and universal. Right. Uh, and, and timeless. Um, so that's one thing. I, and so most of those people who made that critique of like, you're just being a pure pragmatist or, you know, the gospel truths don't change. I don't take those very seriously because it's always, we've always been talking about contextualization here. So that's just silly. But I got this back channel. I'm not going to tell you who it is. So I got a, a back channel message from a pastor who made, I think, a pretty insightful point here. And let me just, I just want to read for your audience his comment, which I do think is pretty insightful on this point that I, the third point I just made that, you know, my contestable claims I think are, are, are a little bit destabilizing. Yeah. He said this, you know, I had a friend who strongly opposed your piece. He, you know, planted a church years ago in a progressive liberal city, and he made a deliberate commitment of never addressing political matters in such a way that his congregation could discern his opinions on these matters, which I, I think in some ways is good and also kind of silly, right? Um, anyway, that's another. It's a, a strategy that may have been okay in say 1993 when Democratic President Bill Clinton you know, believed in a balanced budget, was against gay marriage, and didn't, and really did seem to want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. But to keep that strategy in a post-Obergefell world is only possible if you really downplay or ignore, you know, important elements of the faith. Right. Uh, as such, my friend is in a bind. If he were to start speaking more courageously about the encroaching evils from the left, uh, um, then my friend would lose more than half his church. Right. He's now stuck between his conscience and his salary. And as I've heard many people say in various ways before, it's extremely difficult for a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. In other words, the easiest route to quiet their conscience is to shoot the messenger, you, which is far simpler than the painful and costly work of rethinking their entire entire ministry model at this point of life. Yeah. I thought that was, since this guy sent it to me, um, kind of the initial uproar. And I, I thought that was, I don't know. What do you think about that? Dude, I mean, like, it, it is a subjective, I don't know what the technical term is for those kind of, it's speculative, right? It's a speculative perception of what's happening. Because I, I made some of the same observations with COVID when I had, I mean, a, a cadre. We're talking about a generation of leaders and Gen X and boomers and evangelicalism who offered almost no help. Like almost none. Like Reno, thankfully, I shared his article a month into the pandemic and I had a couple leave my church over it. And I was just trying to like have an open dialogue. I mean, this issue was so, so hot. So I get why people were scared, but I'm like, you're the pastor. You're supposed to be the man of God. And my subjective yeah. perception was like, these guys are about to retire and they would lose their retirement if they said anything. And, and it would threaten the life of their very church. And so now with this, for example, a, a similar observation, if these guys were to do, and I've heard this from church planners, my elder board is split. Half of us are reading Doug Wilson and half of us are reading David French. And I don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm the one, the guys that are talking to me are the guys that are reading Doug Wilson. <laughs> They're the ones going yeah. like, uh, I want to be more courageous, Chase. I hear what you're saying, but if I do it, my church, it dies. It splits. And we've always been yeah. the church unity guys. We want to be unified. We want to love one another. we all about that. But what I think the, the anecdote that whoever this said this was, was dead on when he said for a lot of church planners, especially in my tribe, the, the gold standard is if someone can come to your church and not know where you stand politically. Uh, I remember a couple yeah. was at my church four years ago. And they loved the fact that they didn't, they, uh, they couldn't tell if we were liberal or conservative. And I look back on that and I'm like, well, that was our strategy. And it's mm -hmm. not necessarily anymore. Um, and people are very aware of that. 
Uh, and the people who, who are yeah. able to stay with us, I love those people so much because they're willing to learn and they're willing to grow with us because churches should adopt uh, more contextually sensitive and appropriate methods of cultural engagement over time. So like it's going to look a uh, church a hundred years ago is going to look church uh, different than a church now in some ways. Yeah. But those people that can hang with me through that transition in our church, I respect so much. Um, but I think so many mm -hmm. pastors are stuck right there in the middle and they're going like, dude, if I go hard on this, those people back there, this half of the room is going to go, wait a second. I thought you were totally on board the sexual revolution. I thought you were totally like, we're going to love everybody and you know, whatever. Yeah. And so I think that observation is dead on and I feel so much pain for them. I mean, we went through our own pain where we had an elder leave. We had uh, one elder's wife stop attending because we put a statement after Obergefell in our statement of faith and she never came back to church and he was still an elder. Well, that's a, that's an interesting pickle, <laughs> you know, like, what do you do? And then finally I wrote a blog on white privilege and that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was like, because I talked out yeah. loud questioning white privilege and I was trying to be charitable, man. I wrote it with a black dude. I was like trying to be like, you know, sensitive about it. But because I pushed back a little bit, it was like too much. And so we've just seen a lot of people in our yeah. church, not a lot, but I'm not enough to where I notice as a pastor who have decided to move on because they're like, I can't, they're big thing. And this would be interesting. And we're already going long for my listeners. But the, the big question that's rattling in my head that keeps me up, the big critique is they go, I feel like I can't invite my neighbor to church anymore. That's their thing, because I thought this church was going, I came to this church because it was a place where I could invite my neighbor. And now, because you're saying these things about the government, about trans, about whatever, if I bring my neighbor, they're not going to like me anymore, or they're not even going to, they're going to disassociate with me. And so I can't come to this church anymore because I can't invite my neighbor. Therefore, I have to go to a new church that my neighbor might go to. Which I, I like, I have all sorts of arguments against, but that bothers me. Like that, that like as a church planner, mm -hmm. as a missionary, as somebody who's thinking about this stuff, I want you to be able to invite your neighbor to church. Of course. Yeah. At what cost, though? You know, like at what cost? Are we? Yeah. Okay, cool. So put up the rainbow flag, I guess. Like, is that? Are we just? You know, and so that's something I've been really struggling with. Not because I don't push back against it, but just because it bothers. It, like, it makes me sad. It makes me sad that people have chosen to leave our church because they don't feel like they can invite their liberal friends, you know? Yeah, I think uh, a couple of points on that. And then I want to come back maybe at the very, very last part. Don't let me forget about are these people, you know, a lost cause? Okay. Leaders we're talking yeah. About. I do have a thought on that. But um, on that point, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues. I'm still working out my thoughts on ministry and what this looks like for preaching because there is a sensitivity of um, – being too political in the pulpit, right? Like right. you could actually even lose tax status, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you're telling people how to vote, that, then you, you would lose tax status, right? And so you're not, and I don't, you're not talking about that, but you're talking about issues. And, and then there's a, a question of the wisdom of how often I talk about those. But one of the things I've been trying to encourage people to do to, I think, shift the, the way of thinking about it, is just focus on justice. Um, because I think a lot of these people I'm talking about get so caught up in like, how is this going to harm the public witness of the church? Right. And that means like, don't talk about conservative causes or something like that. And I'm like, you know who doesn't think that way? All my Christian friends on the left. Uh, because they actually believe that their causes are just. Right. And, 
and they don't care if you think it's going to harm the witness. They think these important these causes are important enough to do to to speak about and to to address. So I think it's, it'd be really important for us to focus our our conversations and the way we frame this about justice. And now we're going to have different con competing conceptions of of what justice is and what justice requires. Right. But let's focus on that. And be, and and I'll share this for your audience. Um, two quick quotes here because I think they're, they're short and they're but I think they get to this of how we actually hamstring ourselves. Uh, so Josh Howerton said it this way. He said, when conservative Christians seek political influence, and particularly now we're just talking about telling Christians to engage politics or whatever on these issues, it's culture war and politicizing Christianity. But when progressive Christians do, it's prophetic witness and social justice. Right. See, you, you see the rhetorical ma ma manipulation there. Yeah. And I'm saying, do let's talk about justice. Okay, so that's him. Matt Kennedy put it this way. He said, when people say stop preaching po politics from the pulpit, what they mean is stop, stop talking about abortion and sexuality. When they say preach justice from the pulpit, they mean preach leftist politics from the pulpit. And I, I just want people to see through that enough to, to stop um, getting manipulated. Yes. And uh, it doesn't just mean like be partisan, but it means like, okay, now let's have debates about what justice is. And so the idea about like your parishioners not being able to tell where you stand on, especially real important, like think about if you're in 1860 and your parishioners don't know where you stand on slavery and, and abolition. Right. Like that, that just boggles my mind. Or you would be embarrassed if you were in, 1963 and, and, and thought your, your pastor didn't care about black civil rights. Right. Like that would be an embarrassment and he should be ashamed. Right. And, and, and so I think now we think about the important issues of our day. It's silly. It's silly. Like if, if you don't know where your pastor stands on abortion, I'm sorry, like you need to leave that church. Right. Like, I mean, that, that pastor's failing. It doesn't mean he's, he tells you exactly how to vote or anything, but that, that should be an important issue. That's the biggest issue. And then protecting our kids in other ways right now is really important. So, okay, are these are these people dumb? Um, what, what do we do? Are they too far gone? I, one Just one really short thought is, I don't know, and I'm not giving up on them yet, and that's actually part of what motivated these pieces, right? Which is, I'm trying to help the leaders we're talking about understand some of the concerns that a growing constituency of people have yeah. in hopes that these leaders might actually respond. Um, because, and if, if not, I'm, and I'm also hoping that other leaders step up, uh, and, and fill the gap. But, uh, the, the, what I see is this constituency that we're talking about people who have become disenchanted with the people who appropriate the winsome third way model, uh, they're turning elsewhere for guidance. Doug Wilson's one person you're talking about, and I'm not saying anything necessarily pro or negative on Doug right now. It's a bigger conversation. Sure. But they're also turning elsewhere, like other secular voices. They're turning to Jordan Peterson. Yep. They're turning to Joe Rogan. They're turning to James Lindsay, who all have insights in certain ways, but they're not the pastoral leaders we need right. uh, to help us. Or Barry Weiss or Douglas Murray or whatever, you know, or on COVID, they're looking to Brett Weinstein or whatever. They're looking to all the kind of IDW dark like who have they have a partial contribution to the conversation, but they're also meeting a need that like I want Christian leaders, godly leaders to step up and, and fill and to meet that to meet that and to not just leave this to secular voices who are, con, con, you know, resisting the kind of narrative. So totally. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to respond. I hope they do uh, understand this growing constituency of, of people. And maybe see some of the limitations of their model. I don't know if they will, but if not, I would. I hope that conversations like this inspire other leaders to step up, but to do it in a godly way. Right. And so, um, so who knows? Yeah, I'm. I'm less hopeful than you. Uh, I think on the matter, but I. It depends on the day. I'm on sabbatical right now, so I'm. I'm willing to kind of just be like, 
it is what it is, man. Like, we'll see what happens. But like when I'm not in sabbatical, I'm like, where are they? Like, where are they? They're like, they're all sending French's article around about your ideas. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, cool, 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 cool. So, so it's COVID all over again. I do know, by the way, the, I, reason for hope there. So, you know, a certain amount of people have sent me, big name people have sent me private messages in support. That's great. And, uh, and some, you know, and, uh, and some of them, and I, it'd be nice if they did more publicly, but, but I, I, not just for me, but also for pushing the conversation forward. L I was going to share, share a few names of people that I think to keep your eye okay. on, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I don't have it. Maybe I might not have it here. Maybe I put this elsewhere, but um, like Kevin DeYoung is a guy who needs more attention. Yeah. He, he's a, he's a guy from the old guard who I think is doing some really great stuff. Uh, and so keep your eye on him. Um, one of my jobs, one of the things when I was at first things, I really wanted to give, bring him in more. And so he's going to start writing also a little bit more for first things. Um, Archbishop Dobbs, I said in the ACNA, man, that guy is the real deal. Uh, Archbishop Cordelione, uh, right. Uh, if you're Catholic, I mean, fascinating. So we're now, we're now stepping outside the evangelical circles, but dude, uh, that, that he's leading the way of, of church discipline. Where is right? he? Oh, is he in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, he's the, arch I don't know where he is actually, but he's the archbishop who told Pelosi she couldn't come to the table. Wow. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's just, yeah, there's, I, I'm blanking now. Oh, Joe Rigney's doing some great work. For sure. I mentioned him. I mean, we're, oh, your audience should know we're doing a conference. Uh, Chris Wiley is, is uh, putting together this conference in September, September 9th and 10th, where we're going to talk about these ideas a lot more. And it's going to be me, Aaron Wren, and Joe Rigney talking on these things and trying to develop this a bit more. Be great. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I think there's there's some things happening. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit encouraged. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of these big-name leaders you are talking about, if they think that David – I don't want to talk about David French too much, but if they think – He's accurately representing me. I, I, I no longer trust their reader, their reader, their reading skills, um, or maybe their reading virtues. Yeah, because David French's critiques of me. We can talk about Ren's framework all day long. Sure, sure. But uh, but yeah, I, I'm a little bit disappointed with about a lot of the leaders who are passing that article around as if it accurately represented what I'm advocating for. Right. So. Well, I'm encouraged by you, and um, you know, just keep up the great work. If you uh, if you want to follow James, you can follow him on Twitter. He's he's a great follow. He locked himself or whatever you call it, made him private on Twitter. I couldn't retweet him for months and it killed me because I love this content and uh, <laughs> especially the theology. Uh, just just great. He really embodies a, a type of ministry that I want to grow in more. And so I respect him a lot. And uh, the work he's doing up being a professor, I wish I could go be in one of his classes because I'm sure he's a great teacher. Um, but if people want to keep up with you, James, where, I mean, obviously Twitter's a good place. Where, where yeah. else could they find your work? Yeah, all over the place. It's Twitter, you know, is the best place um, to see kind of what I'm currently thinking. And uh, but yeah, I've published a lot of academic journals, usually on church. I actually don't focus on politics all the time. I actually mostly write about the church, some sacraments stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I write it first things. Uh, uh, Theopolis, I do some stuff. Actually, uh, look, be on the lookout in the next year. I'll be uh, working on a podcast with Peter Lightheart on political theology. Great. So that's something that's in the works right now. So that's probably the other big thing. You can find me in other, other places. Okay, perfect. Well, James, thanks so much for being on the show today. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoy this content, share it with somebody else. If you know somebody who uh, I described, stuck in the middle, doesn't know what to do, let this uh, podcast content be a conversation starter. You can check out James's article. Uh, I'll drop in the show notes. And if you uh, want to support the podcast, I'd love your support. Hop on Patreon. I'll drop a link to that. 